are the words about a pandemic at this point? No, we're not at all, and uh, we're we have it totally under control. We have it under control. It's uh, going to be just fine. We think we have it very well under control. We think it's going to have a very good ending for us. So uh, that I can uh, assure you. Well, we pretty much shut it down. Coming in from China. They're getting it under control more and more. They're getting it more and more under control. So I think it's going to be under control. And I think uh, I can speak for our country, for our country is uh, under control. Something that we have uh, tremendous control of. We have it totally under control. We're doing great. I would put us in the category of doing very well. I feel good about it. That's all it is, just a feeling. I, you know, I'm a smart guy, smart guy, smart guy. He spent a lot of time on Twitter today boasting about the excellent television ratings his, his news conferences have received. But even they said that the ratings are like Monday night football ratings and that these are like bachelor finale. Are the words about a pandemic at this point? No, we're not at all, and we're, we have it totally under control. I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. We're in great shape. You are fake news. Today on the Jay Doherty Podcast. The message, the motives, and the facts. These three things are all coming into question under the political surge the vastly growing COVID-19 pandemic has brought on. As doctors, financial analysts, cable news reporters, and the president continue to be biased towards their own vocation, the sprawling coronavirus just gets bigger. What are the facts? Who are the new players? And what should you be paying attention to? Also, as the days go on, New York is hit harder and harder. State Governor Andrew Cuomo is in the middle of a grueling situation, but his willingness to put politics aside has allowed New York to work efficiently and effectively with the federal government despite the initial hiccups. How does this crisis disposition allow Governor Cuomo to lead during a time of staggering tragedy? And what is the Trump administration doing, both medically and financially, to support struggling states around the country? We'll answer all that and more in episode number 132 of the Jade Doherty Podcast. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. And now, from Chicago, here's Jay Doherty. That is correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. It is episode number 132. Thank you very much for being here. It is currently Friday, April 10th, 2020 at 9.06 p.m. As we come on the air, a little bit of a later start today. And we're also doing video once again, testing out this new experiment. You can see it at jay-doherty.com slash 132. Uh, we're going to begin, of course, with coronavirus. It continues to take over the headlines. The world has certainly changed as a result of coronavirus, to put it lightly. Uh, and I just want to remind everyone that the most important thing to do right now is to stay inside and do not spread the virus. And next to that, the most important thing to do is to be grateful to the doctors, the nurses, and all of the people out there that are fighting the, that are putting their lives on the line and fighting this virus every single day. Right now, there are 1,696,139 cases, 500,399 of those are in the United States, and out of that total number, 1.6 million, or nearly 1.7 million, uh, there are uh, 376,200 total recovered cases, and right now in the world, there are 102,669 deaths, the, uh, the plurality of those deaths. Um, are in Italy, next, and then Spain, and then France, United Kingdom, and even following that, just on a city basis, New York City is the uh, right now the fifth in terms of total deaths uh, overall in the world. So New York City is certainly an epicenter, and they rank extremely high uh, in terms of deaths, especially relative to the United States' case numbers, and we're looking at that right now. The good news is, though, according to models, the uh, projections of this virus have done ex much better in terms of case numbers, not in terms of deaths this week, than uh, what was anticipated. In fact, it's an, an article uh, written by Holland Yant, Steve Almazi, Madeline Holcomb, and Omar Jimenez from CNN says that even though Wednesday was another day that brought a record number of uh, deaths reported from coronavirus in the United States, there was a glimmer of hope as models now have less dire forecasts for the total number of fatalities the country will see by the time the pandemic subsides. To remind everyone, uh, this week was projected to be the most deadly week so far in terms of coronavirus deaths. And it certainly was. It was not a good week in terms of deaths, but as we'll talk about in a second, the number of cases overall 
um, has sort of plateaued, especially in the epicenters like New York, and less people are requiring hospitalization than projected, uh, tens of thousands less than projected, which is good, and it proves, and we'll talk about this again more in a second, that social distancing is actually working. The measures that the government, the local governments and state governments are, you know, imposing upon their constituents are uh, having major effects and positive effects on the virus's spread. The CNN article I'm referring to says that more than 431,000 people in the United States have been infected and more than 14,700 have died. Of course, those statistics have increased, but a record 1,858 deaths were reported just one day on Tuesday this week, according to Johns Hopkins, and on Wednesday there were 1,922 more. These were total these were records in the entire coronavirus case in coronavirus cases throughout the you know its first appearance in the uh, Hubei province of China in the city of Wuhan researchers though say that the peak has yet to come from a statistical point the US will reach its highly daily number of deaths uh, on or around this Sunday according to modeling by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington in Seattle the projections also suggest the United States will reach its peak use of resources, such as hospital beds and ventilators, on or around Saturday. Uh, and, and that really remains the, as we talked about extensively on episode number 131, infrastructure remains the biggest problem, both on a federal level and a state level. Getting the supplies that states need from the federal government and also tapping into their state, uh, to their uh, state stockpiles and calling on private industry to hopefully contribute to uh, their need for masks, ventilators, and other things is certainly something that needs to happen and something that is happening. So infrastructure has actually improved dramatically, at least the access the access for epicenters like New York and California and other places. And not that California is an epicenter, but there are a lot of cases there. Uh, the the supply of infrastructure, the supply of mask ventilators, and other things have very much been met, at least as of now which is really good news. The other piece of good news is that the modeling shows fewer people will die from coronavirus than previously expected. On Tuesday, the, IHA, the IHME estimated about 82,000 people will uh, die from the coronavirus disease by August. On Wednesday, the estimate was lower to 60,415. So that is a 22,000, uh, approximately, like 21,600 jump in terms of how many or sorry, not uh, jump, like a subtraction uh, in terms of how many people will die. So it is much, much better. 20,000 less people are projected to die uh, than what was originally projected. Now, of course, projections are only hypothesis, you know, it's just they're just um, out there for hypothesis. It's not like these are actual numbers, but that is what we can see right now, and that's what the IHME is saying about all of these, and they've been pretty much on target in all of their uh, public, you know, releasing of models and statistics. By the way, the IHME is the uh, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. So that that is good, and those are the sort of the statistical updates that we begin with for you today. Um, but before we even begin and get really deep down into the governmental response in coronavirus, I just want to note that Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race for president. It was long overdue, in my opinion. I thought, you know, I predicted that he was going to drop out weeks before he did, but he basically waited until the last possible moment, until it was mathematically impossible for him to win the nomination, giving Joe Biden a clear path to the, to the Democratic nomination. I realized I sort of skipped from coronavirus to this, but the reason I'm doing that is just because before we really get into coronavirus, I want to just not ignore the fact that he did drop out. Um, and I'm just going to leave it at that because we could talk about, you know, 2020 elections for days, uh, but coronavirus is just taking over the news and it's a little bit more urgent, actually a lot more urgent than the 2020 presidential race right now. So let's just jump into what the federal government is doing. Now that the congressional action remains over, at least for now, the government is on to really face its next challenge, and that challenge remains infrastructure. If we go off the news uh, from this week specifically, I can confidently reinstate my opinion that the best people working strictly from the federal government at this point are Vice President Mike Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Now, Pompeo hasn't really been on the stage uh, around, you know, recently at these briefings. I think he was at one or two this week. Um, but the overall presence of uh, both of them, like uh, Pence and Pompeo, and only them, by the way, that's important, <laughs> on a federal level, has been far more calming than that of Trump, McConnell, Pelosi, Schumer, maybe Mnuchin, and the rest. And the reason for that largely has to do with the vice president. Uh, vice President Pence has been sort of a robot of information who happens to hold conservative beliefs during this entire virus. For example, here is him updating the world about how he, being the head of the coronavirus task force, is structuring 
federal COVID-19 relief efforts. His message was sort of contradicted, or was sort of contradictive of the one that the president uh, has been touting, which relies heavily on boosting the actual economy and not, you know, not exactly relying on medical evidence, at least in the early days. Uh, Pence, likely at the advice, the advice of the, you know, doctors like Fauci and Burks, is more data focused, which is really good to see. I think most of America knows that no one wants to reopen America more than President Donald Trump. But the president's told us we need to do it responsibly and we're going to follow the data. We're literally following the data on a county by county basis. I think what, what you hear the health experts saying will inform uh, the president's decision and timing. But make no mistake about it, that the best thing we can do to reopen America is put the coronavirus behind us, to reach the, to reach the end of that curve with as little loss of life or hardship as possible. So what the vice president just said is sounds probably really obvious to most people, including me and probably you, uh, particularly the last part. But the messages that we've been seeing, that we've been getting from the president simply do not align with the better, uh, clearer and more strategic and data focused messages that we've seen and been getting from the vice president and the rest of the coronavirus task force. And I say that very frankly, with all politics aside, I mean, the the, the message that Pence and that that of the coronavirus task force is pushing is a lot more clear and a lot more logical than the one that the president himself is pushing. Uh, coming into this week, you know, I said that based off of the models that were released the week prior, uh, it would be a very deadly week. Even the president, who has stayed very low key on discussing depressing news like that, uh, in his botched delivery, crosses into fiction at times. That's a very common thing that the president does. Uh, but he did even go into the depressing news that he doesn't really like to go on. You know, he likes to sort of be optimistic, but a lot of times, as I said, it crosses into fiction because he's trying to make everyone feel better without delivering necessarily the truth all of the time. But here's what uh, the president actually said last Saturday. It was sort of scary to hear the president actually admit specifically that there will be lots of death, and he did this very blatantly. Here's Trump. This will be probably the toughest week between this week and next week, and there'll be a lot of death, unfortunately, but a lot less death, death than if this wasn't done, but there will be death. And that was what he said uh, on Saturday leading into this week, by the way. So, you know, that that's really where it stands right now, and the, the, the death models that they have uh, predicted have pretty much come to fruition. It is the end of the week, or not the end of the week that they projected, because it's only Friday, but it's the end of the work week, and the death numbers are on, on their way to, you know, meet what uh, analysts have projected and what Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, Dr. Burks, the CDC, and the WHO have projected, and that's not good. But there there is good and bad news that has followed that statement that Trump made. Um, so the good news, uh, we just said the bad news, but the good news is that according to Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, of course, the two top infectious disease experts on the virus right now, this week, in terms of case numbers in the United States, is going to be a lot better than anticipated and has been a lot better than anticipated. Um, fewer people are contracting the virus and fewer people are actually in need of hospitalization because really, it's not so much like people at least from the government standpoint, like Fauci and Burks and, and really infrastructure people, are not necessarily concerned. Uh, obviously, they don't want a huge health crisis where everyone's just staying inside because that stimulates the economy. But the problem that people are facing right now, the problem that experts are trying to address is uh, how people, you know, how they're going to provide the infrastructure for really sick people. Because you can, like, for example, Chris Cuomo has coronavirus right now. I'm just, I just pick him arbitrarily because he's, like, famous. And, you know, people know that he has coronavirus. He is, you know, staying at home. He is resting, and he's operating completely from home. He's not yet required hospitalization, but there are many people who have. Um, so that's the good news, that hospitalization rates, at least particularly this week, are much better than expected. The bad news is that deaths have gone up as they had predicted. Dr. Fauci said very outwardly that the social distancing measures that have been put in place and acted upon by the American people, and, you know, again, these models are, are you know, made suggesting and predicting that people not that not all people actually abide by the rules put into place uh, but they said that people are doing social distancing that people are doing it at better rates than they had even that doctors had even uh, expected and that people are acting upon these even apart from the uh, essential workers who are risking their lives every day even if it's not in the medical field to go out there and do their work here's dr fauci at the white house briefing on uh thursday summarizing exactly what had happened so far. Remember last weekend when we made the forecast that this would really be a bad week? As I mentioned yesterday and the day before, it is in the sense of deaths a bad week. 
at the same time as we're seeing the increase in deaths, we're seeing rather dramatic decrease in the need for hospitalizations. Like I think yesterday was something like 200 new hospitalizations, and it's been as high as 1,400 at any given time. So that is going in the right direction. I say that, and I always remind myself when I say that, that means that what we are doing is working, and therefore we need to continue to do it. I know I sound like a broken record. That's good. I want to sound like a broken record. Let's just keep doing it. Exactly. And Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks have been very valuable sort of apexes of information throughout this entire fire. It's very reasonable and factual, but still, um, you know, adding some, you know, emotion without botching the facts as the president often does. But objectively, the federal response to this whole thing has improved greatly since last week. And that largely has to do with the helpful people on this issue like Dr. Fauci, like Dr. Burks. Now, moving on to the not-as-good part, the executive branch, uh, the president was really not as helpful, and neither were his minions. You may have heard the president on TV tout a drug called hydroxychloroquine. You ever heard of that drug? So scientifically, this drug is totally unproven to have any positive effect in battling the coronavirus for you know, recently discovered reason. We'll talk about that in a second. But anyway, President Trump promotes the drug very frequently. The, the promotion first gained attention in late March when uh, the president and Dr. Fauci were having a, sort of a mild disagreement that wasn't direct, like they were sort of taking the podium one by one, answering reporters' questions, but they would contradict each, each other's statements very lightly. And it was sort of asked to be clarified what actually it was, but not, you know, what uh, both of them meant. But not surprisingly, Fauci's claims were rooted in facts and the president's claims were not. Here is a clip from an ABC News report by Cecilia Vega that actually showed their contradicting interaction. Now, keep in mind that this clip that I'm about to play... Uh, was all on the same day, in the same hour, on the same podium, and the report actually starts with the correspondent uh, asking Fauci a question. Here it is. Is there any evidence to suggest that, as with malaria, it might be used as a prophylaxis against COVID-19? No, the answer is is no, and and the, the evidence that you're talking about, John, is anecdotal evidence. But President Trump pushed on, leading to a rare public rebuke by the nation's foremost expert on infectious diseases. May work, may not work. I feel good about it. That's all it is, just a feeling. I, you know, I'm a smart guy. As you know the expression, what the hell do you have to lose? So I've been right a lot. Let's see what happens. I would like, Dr. Fauci, if you don't mind, uh, to follow up on what the president is saying. Should Americans have hope in this drug right now? The president feels optimistic about something, his feeling about it. It might be effective, but as a scientist, as we're getting it out there, we need to do it in a way as while we are making it available for people who might want the hope that it might work, you're also collecting data that will ultimately show that it is truly effective and safe under the conditions of COVID-19. Fundamentally, I think it probably is going to be safe, but I like to prove things first. Well, that's true, and I think it's not true for the president, but it's true for Fauci, and I think, you know, Fauci will take the, you know, always uh, be on the route, as everyone should, of taking the more pragmatic and scientific approach in these sorts of questions, and I think that's actually what he's doing, and hopefully the president will do the same. He, he was very aggressive in the initial part, uh, the president was very aggressive in the initial uh, pushing of this drug, the initial touting of it, um, and on that press briefing, that, that was, you know, Fauci was sort of, the, I think, the final straw when he made those last comments about saying, you know, the president has a feeling, I have science, and it just takes a while to prove drugs are, you know, push out to be, to, to go through the efficacy tests that they have to go through. But nonetheless, the president doubled down on his comments in a more recent briefing last Sunday, uh, which, uh, where he said this on uh, two separate occasions here is Trump. You have to go through uh, your medical people, get the approval, uh, but... Uh I've seen things that I sort of like, so what do I know? I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but I have common sense. And we'll see if it works. No, it's not gonna, it's not gonna hurt people. It can help them, but it's not gonna hurt them. That's the beauty of it, you see? It can help them, but it's not gonna hurt them. What do you have to lose? Okay, so that's really what I don't understand. Why, why is he touting such a drug? He doesn't, he's not, a, as he admits, he's not a doctor. He doesn't know anything about it. He, seem, he says that it seems to work. It's been implemented in certain hospitals in, in the world uh, and throughout the United States. But why is that happening? Why is the president actually doing it? The reason is because a New York Times article surfaced this April 6th that actually said that the president had financial interest in a company that manufactures hydroxychloroquine. 
The article from the New York Times reads, If hydroxychloroquine becomes an accepted treatment, several pharmaceutical companies stand to profit, including shareholders and senior executives with connections to the president. Mr. Trump himself has a small personal financial interest in Sanofi, the federal drug maker that makes uh, Plaquenil, which is the brand name version of hydroxychloroquine. So that's a little bit sketchy right there. Uh, in the beginning of this, I mentioned, you know, that why why would the president really promote this? I think I think maybe he has good intentions, but specifically this drug. Why would he go if he has financial interest? His friends have financial interest. His staff has financial interest. Why would you know? You got to at least examine the possibility that the president is promoting this drug simply for his own personal benefit, or you know his benefit, and also it helps people out there as well. I, I'm just saying that you have to consider it, even if you don't, if you uh, look at the facts. I also mentioned Trump's minions going into this piece here. Peter Navarro is one of Trump's minions, and he is not by any means contributing to the solution of coronavirus <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, he used to be in the news a lot back in the day. You may remember with uh, the days of Mueller, with the days of Russia and uh, the Russia investigation, he would spout on cable news about how the president you know, didn't do anything wrong and all, all that sort of thing. There was no collusion. He holds not one, not two, but three positions in the White House these days. He's the assistant to the president, the director of trade and manufacturing policy, and the National Defense Production Act policy coordinator. Many of those titles do overlap, just to you know, be fair. Uh, but Navarro is someone who is very, very close to the president. Uh, not the administration, not the federal government, not the White House, just the president personally, from what we've seen in the past. At least I would make that assumption. Um, and, you know, notably, he's not close to the task force. And he likes to push agendas publicly. Here, here's uh, actually Navarro. He was on CNN talking to John Berman. And this, this clip did get a lot of attention. Uh, Navarro did get a lot of heat for sort of claiming that he knows better than Dr. Fauci on coronavirus. It was just sort of an awkward interview. Here's uh, uh, J- uh, Navarro, actually, uh, Peter Navarro, um, actually making those comments on CNN to John Berman. Take a listen. So why is Dr. Anthony Fauci, the lead infectious disease doctor in the country, wrong about this, in your opinion? Sure. I, I let him speak uh, for himself, John, but I would have two words for you. Second opinion. And in terms of the studies that exist, I think you would grant me uh, that there are numerous studies uh, on this which show preliminary therapeutics. Let's I know three. Clear. Hang on, hang on, uh, Peter. John, Peter, let, Peter no, I have to ask a question. I let you, I let you go to four points yeah, in the sure. beginning. I just want sure. to follow up. You're saying a second opinion here. What are your qualifications to weigh in on medicine more than Dr. Anthony Fauci? Why should we listen to you and not Dr. Fauci? There's doctors disagree about things all the time. My qualifications in terms of looking at the science uh, is that I'm a social scientist. I have a PhD and I, I understand how to read statistical studies, whether it's in medicine, the law, economics, or whatever. Uh, I, I'm and, sorry, uh, that, that doesn't now, qualify you to treat well, patients. You, 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 you can, know it doesn't that, qualify that, you hang to on, treat John, patients. John, okay, John, okay, John. okay. So the, the, the interview goes on and they, you know, they do the CNN fight and everything. But that's the way he does it. Uh, I mean, really. Navarro, so, by the way, I guess I didn't immediately preface it by saying that the whole exchange was about the president's touting of hydroxychloroquine and why, you you know, it's very risky or at least somewhat risky to, you know, analyze the possible consequences of using uh, the hydroxychloroquine on a large scale when treating coronavirus preliminarily, but that's what uh, John Berman and Peter Navarro were fighting about. If you listen there, he did say the, his name, John, a lot during the interview. In fact, I made a little <laughs> compilation specifically from that interview of uh, Peter Navarro saying John Berman's name multiple times. Take a listen. John, 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 John. Okay, so that was sort of funny, but uh, if you can count how many times he said it, that was only a part of the interview when he said that. If you can count how many times he did it in the entire interview, you can submit your uh, comment at comments at j-20.com. Maybe we'll have a prize or something. Anyway. Uh, the two things that I would take away from that statement, on a more serious note, um, is that I would agree with Doctor or with Peter Navarro. I guess Doctor Navarro. He does have a PhD. Everyone, uh, so I, I would agree that you don't necessarily need to be a college-educated expert on a particular subject to read certain studies, and that applies far beyond just medicine. Uh, but when you stand, this this is the problem that I think is really the big problem. When you stand on the White House lawn as the personal assistant to the president. Promote an unapproved drug that your boss and his colleagues happen to have financial interest in, and then claim that you're providing a second opinion, a medical second opinion, even though you have no known medical credentials, you're basically basing a statement out of nothing, and you're basing a statement off of financial interest and, you know, you're the at the sort of behest of your superior. 
the second thing is that when Navarro touts these messages, he's not only uh, you know undermining un- undermining Dr. Fauci, he's also diminishing the coronavirus task force, the FDA, the longstanding efficacy pro- uh, process for the approval of drugs in the United States, and really overall the medical system uh, you know in this country. I think that really needs to be examined, particularly with Peter Navarro. And those statements. And it was it was not just him. There were other people who who said similar things that were sort of close allies with the president personally, uh, who touted these things. Uh, but you know, I think Pence and Pompeo are really sticking to the facts, and they're listening to Fauci and Burks, and that's really good to see. There's also other doctors that are doing extremely well. It's not just Fauci and Burks, but um, those are that's really what's happening, and those are the moves that people are making. You really have to identify who's trustworthy and who's not in these certain cases because it's very you know important to understand what is actually happening and who to trust. In this case particularly, though, I mean, I think it's the optics that really make the situation bad. I mean, Fauci has said um, that he does think that hydroxychloroquine probably is will pass efficacy tests. It probably will work as it's intended to. But, you know, if I'm a coronavirus patient right now, I'm sitting in the hospital with my well-being and potentially my life on the line, the word probably going to work, the word's probably not going to work, is not going to cut it in my mind. I, I would need proven confirmation that hydroxychloroquine will not have any negative side effects to it. I mean, Navarro actually admitted that there are potentially deadly consequences to hydroxychloroquine um, that are very rare, uh, and that it does that it has not been fully or officially vetted like a normal like normal medicines would be. I think um, you know there are certain cases where if something is appears to be you know, uh, past efficacy tests or is, pro- or is predicted to be, I think, and, and people are like literally dying at extremely rapid rates, which we're seeing with coronavirus, I think it, you could consider passing it through a test. But if there are side effects that are really harmful that have not been proven to be totally, you know, like extremely rare or just avoidable at all costs, I think it's r- really risky to talk about, um, you know, promoting them, especially when you have financial interest in the company that produces them. Um, and I also think that, from my perspective, it's a bit risky to talk about medicine, you know, as a host, a podcast host, uh, because I'm obviously not a doctor. So I'm going to refer to an article about uh, f- about an expert, uh, about an expert's opinion from NBC News that actually says that um, as the U.S. sales uh, scales up purchases and u- in the use of the drug hydroxychloroquine to treat coronavirus patients, a leading Mayo Clinic cardiologist is sounding a wa- uh, warning. Anyone promoting the drug also needs to flag its rare but serious and potentially fatal uh, side effects. You can see the article if you're watching on the video right now. President Donald Trump has repeatedly touted the potential benefits of hydroxychloroquine, which has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA to treat malaria uh, and other autoimmune ailments, but has not yet proven effective and safe in treating the coronavirus. The president, of course, said, "What do you have to lose? Uh, why? Are, why would you, you know, concern me?" He said, "Actually, I think in that clip that what you know that's the beauty of it. You have nothing to lose. Just buy the drug, use it, and you know, make my friends profit a little bit." Um, after observing the debate over hydroxychloroquine on TV news and social media, Dr. Michael Ackerman, a genetic uh, cardiologist who is the director of the Mayo Clinic's Winland uh, Smith Rice Genetic Heart Rhythm Clinic, took the unusual step in late March of issuing guidance for positions. What disturbed me, and this is a quote from uh, the doctor, what disturbed me was the most was uh, when I, sorry, was when I was seeing not political officials say these medications are safe, but seeing on the news cardiologists and infectious disease specialists say hydroxychloroquine is completely safe without even mentioning the, this rare side effect, Ackerman said in an interview. He said, that's inexcusable. Ackerman and his Mayo Clinic colleagues created a cardiac algorithm published in the Mayo Clinic proceedings to help uh, physicians more safely prescribe hydroxychloroquine by identifying patients at greatest risk, risk for drug-induced sudden cardiac death. So that's what you have to realize, and that's what you have to recognize. The fact is that hydroxychloroquine does treat malaria, it treats other uh, illnesses as well, but it's not been vetted or proved to be, uh, you know, pass efficacy tests by the FDA and other organizations um, for, you know, for it to actually be treated effectively with coronavirus without having any side effects, you know, when the immune system fights the, or takes in the drug and fights, fights the virus, because you don't want, obviously, them to overlap, um, and cause potentially deadly side effects. I think the entire question in this particular issue is, would you listen to medical doctor Anthony Fauci, who's been the longtime head of the nation's infectious disease system, or Trump assistant Peter Navarro? That's really the, the question that you have to ask yourself. Um, and that's the question that many Americans are asking themselves. 
the other question that the majority of Americans by far, I mean, you have to remember that this thing is affecting everyone in the world, but a few people, you know, relatively a few people actually have the coronavirus in the world. And the majority of Americans are certainly asking themselves, what's going to happen to the stimulus bill? When am I going to start to receive money because my business is doing bad? I was laid off. I was furloughed you know, in the rest. People are suffering major economic consequences as a result of coronavirus, and the good news is that's not being ignored pretty much everywhere, uh, or at least the efforts are not being ignored. Other than the Federal Reserve right now and the Coronavirus Task Force, um, they're really handling, both of them, the, what states actually end up doing during the virus. So both the Federal Reserve and the Coronavirus Task Force have incredible sway over not only the economy right now, but also the health and well-being of all Americans right now. So, like, they have tons of sway in what actually ends up happening with the coronavirus and what ends up happening with people's well-being, you know, assuming they don't have the coronavirus. Um, you may remember the stimulus package that passed Congress a couple weeks ago. It feels like a lot longer than that, but Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin tentatively confirmed this week that the timeline of the package he had originally laid out about a, you know how soon Americans would begin to receive stimulus uh, checks had been sped up by about a week at a uh, White House briefing. Uh, at the White House podium this week, here is Stephen Mnuchin tentatively confirming that the uh, that there's been sort of an expedite, uh, or the timeline has been expedited. That sounds very corporate, but uh, what's actually happening with the coronavirus stimulus package and the timeline of it? He says that instead of three weeks, it's actually going to be two weeks. Here's uh, Stephen Mnuchin. I'm also pleased to report the economic impact payments. Uh, I had previously said this would take us three weeks. I'm pleased to report that within two weeks, the first payments will be direct deposit into taxpayers' account. And as the president said, last night the president authorized me to say that anybody that has Social Security recipients won't need to file a new tax return and will have that. If we don't have your direct deposit information. We'll be putting up a web portal so that you can put that up. Uh, it is a very large priority. The president has made clear we want to get this money quickly into your hands. Okay, so that's good. And it's not, you know, just the president wanting to get or anyone really wanting to get money into people's hands. It helps the economy. It helps their administration. It helps the presidency. And it helps Trump to get reelected if people actually start receiving these benefits quickly. It has been quite the technical struggle, actually, in the early days of for small businesses, particularly to receive these uh, benefits that, you know, if you're eligible to receive these benefits, which uh, there are many small business owners that are, it was sort of stagnated, the process. Uh, there were technical glitches all around the, the across the board uh, in terms of actually getting these uh, the, the money for small businesses. I think it was resolved, but it was a little bit scary for a lot of people. You know, they were really desperate for the money in a quick manner. And I think as we talked about before, we talked about this last week, the infrastructure and the actual um, procedural niceties that will come along with transferring to, like, what would it be, like $800 billion, almost a trillion dollars to people and businesses across the country. And I mean, that is an incredible uh, feat for the IRS to handle. It's a credible feat for the Treasury Department to handle. And, you know, Stephen Mnuchin being the uh, Secretary of the Treasury has a lot of pressure under him to actually get this out. But it's not just, it's not for all Americans because it is only for these certain people who are eligible. In fact, the Washington Post did a good job of summarizing basically what we've been talking about on this podcast for quite some time. They say if you earn less than 75000 or you and your spouse collectively make less than 150000 you get $1,200 each for each of you plus $500 for each child under 17. These amounts are reduced for people with higher incomes and individuals with, with 99000 in earnings. Uh, or $198,000 for a couple, get nothing, even if they have children. You must have a social security number to be eligible for a payment, which will not be taxed. Um, uh, Kyle Pomerleau, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, according to the Washington Post, estimates that 165 million people, or 93% of all tax filers, will get some benefit, with about 140 million of them getting the full amount of $1,200. Se seniors will, whose only income is from Social Security and veterans who rely solely on disability payments will also receive the payments. The question also is, how will the IRS calculate my income? It all There's a graph on the Washington Post, which does a better job than I'm going to be explaining it, but they're basically basing everything off of your 2018 and 2019 tax returns, so if you've not filed those, then you will not be eligible. There's also a slew of other things that you will not be eligible for. Uh, if you are a person who's under 17 or 18 years old, you're not eligible. If you are uh, fit certain brackets within, within um, 
college students that are between 19 and 23, you're likely not eligible. Um, if you uh, are an adult that can be claimed as a dependent, you are not <laughs> you're not eligible. Non-resident aliens or, or those without a green card are not um, eligible. Anything who that can be identified as an estate is not uh, eligible. And people who, of course, have not filed their 2018 and 2019 tax returns are not eligible. So it sort of narrows the playing field significantly, making it a lot more fair for the general population because uh, the money is going to who needs it most. And when I say general population, I mean the, the plurality of the population uh, in terms of tax dollars. I mean, 93% is you know receiving these benefits off of the tax-paying American and the people who have those accounts. So it's certainly a very fair distribution. And I think Democrats and Republicans, particularly within the Congress, were, able, were very willing and able to decide on a deal that actually did end up benefiting all of America. And that's really what both the president and Congress are trying to communicate to the American people, despite the fact that it has been very hard from a technical standpoint for small businesses to receive funds you know, from the stimulus package. I think communication is key. And usually the president has been you know, doing that himself with all these daily briefings. Governors around the uh, country have been doing that, uh, you know, every, have had daily briefings very frequently. Um, and the president has been doing a lot of the communication from the White House himself. Every day he's up there on the podium. Um, and it's really, I think the effects of that are really good and bad. I think the good news is, a good thing that comes from that is that he can sort of be the facilitator of experts and take credit for bringing them to the podium. Uh, but it's bad when you have to hear him mislead everyone and sort of contradict the experts that he facilitated in the first place. But nonetheless, in terms of normalcy, uh, you would normally probably have a press secretary do that, right? Well, it's, the press secretary has sort of been MIA, and that's at the direction of the president, of course, but there is a new press secretary that has just been involved, and her name is Kaylee McEnany. If you have watched CNN, maybe between 2017, 2018, 2019, you probably know exactly who she is. She uh, is n now named the White House press secretary. We'll talk about her in a second. But the now former press secretary was Stephanie Grisham. She was uh, out there. She used to work for the First Lady. She now does work again for the First Lady. Um, once more, she was sort of rearranged in her positions. You probably have never heard of um, Stephanie Grisham because she's exiting her position as press secretary without holding a single press briefing. So you probably have never seen her on TV or at least rarely seen her on TV. But uh, Kaylee McEnany is, repla is replacing Stephanie Grisham as the White House press secretary. Uh, Kaylee McEnany is, to put it lightly, a diehard Trump loyalist. She's a hardcore Trump supporter. She's probably the most articulate, all-out pro-Trump advocate on cable news, um, which is sort of an narrow strike zone. I don't even think that she is necessarily a Republican. I, she's obviously a Republican, but she's not a, you know, the, her strike zone is not all of Republicans because there are a lot of Republicans who just don't like Trump because of, you know, the stuff he says. But uh, people do not, or sorry, McEnany really does like Trump, she's pro-Trump on everything, no matter what he does, I mean, he, he, she, she, you know, what, no matter what Trump does, McEnany defends it, and she's been doing that for years on cable news, um, but, you know, in order to be articulate, as she is very frequently about President Trump, you have to lie, but what is unique about, um, uh, McEnany is that she really knows how to handle people, particularly members of the press and colleagues who are sort of in the same line of work, or used to be in the same line of work she was when she was a commentator on CNN. Um, she was actually complimented by, you know, CNN and, and other networks, particularly CNN. I think she was actually only hired by CNN in the first place back in the day. Um, she was complimented and invited back like multiple times, almost every day. I think she was on a regular conservative. She was a regular conservative panelist on CNN. I remember Anderson Cooper, you know, even saying that he invited her back because she's just so aligned with Trump. She is just she just does not waver. Um, and that was good because, you know, she's, in my opinion, so aligned to Trump that maybe she's not even aligned with the Republican Party anymore. She's just so diehard Trump. She's such a diehard Trump fan. Um, and, you know, I, I suppose that's good for Trump to have her as the press secretary, but it's sort of like, when does the, the truth end up actually coming out from the press secretary? Because, it, you know, if she's not holding any briefings, then what is she doing other than maybe, you know, putting out briefs that sort of have very generic things? I, I don't know. I, you know, I just hope that this career suits her well. Let's just put it that way. Um, as the New York Times writes, 
Kaylee McEnany was named Republican National Committee spokesperson in spokeswoman in 2017. Um, so that was her job initially. She's a long, longtime Republican. She graduated from Harvard Law School. She was more than qualified. She then joined the Trump campaign as a national secretary, press secretary in 2019. Along the way, she's been a vocal defender of Mr. Trump on television, the main role the president has long believed the press secretary should play, according to current and former advisors. That's really the, the key point in this article. Trump thinks that press secretaries should go out onto TV and defend him publicly so they can get their ratings either up or down. It is not by any means, according to Trump, uh, for them to go out and have briefings. That, in his mind, is either not his job or his job full-time. I think one of the things he said recently, or maybe even not recently, was the reason I have all these briefings is because the fake news will skew my words on Twitter and all this nonsense, so I have to go out here and defend myself. Usually, you'd have a press secretary to do that, but I guess the president doesn't really feel that that is a trustworthy thing that he can do, so instead, he sends him out to uh, CNN, the studios of CNN and the studios of Fox News to end up defending himself, or uh, defending him, uh, and putting the pressure on the press secretary's back. Uh, from the New York Times article, they say, one of her assignments as press secretary, according to a person familiar with the press operation, will be to build out a rapid response team, similar to what exists in the campaign, and possibly, possibly to eventually give briefings. <laughs> I love how the New York Times put this, and possibly to eventually give press briefings. It's a lot of uh, you know pre pretense to what actually may happen in this. The New York Times article goes on to say, her television outings, like others who have defended Mr. Trump, have often been at the extreme end of the administration's talking points. That's certainly putting it very lightly, um, the extreme end of the administration's talking points. really more the extreme or aligned end of President Trump's talking points as a person. And, you know, I really do think that that is putting it lightly because it, that that's where she stands. She is very, I know I keep sounding like a bro broken record, but if you ever, never heard of her, first of all, I highly recommend you do go out in there and actually watch what she's doing. Uh, but I also recommend that you go back and, you know, go back, watch her on CNN back in the day where she would just go after very aggressively uh, not fellow at all, not liberal panelists. She was often the only conservative voice on the entire panel, and it's really interesting to see. Super pro-Trump. She actually quit CNN, um, you know, as a commentator, took a job at the Trump campaign. The, literally the next day, I think, she tweeted out on Twitter, obviously on Twitter, <laughs> she tweeted that uh, she took a new job back in 2019, and she was the Trump's uh, spokesperson. She's been doing stuff on Snapchat and Instagram, promoting the Trump campaign. She moved, she she took a promotion. She's no longer on the campaign. She's now the press secretary of the United States. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. Thank you for joining us, everybody. I'm Kaylee McEnany, and that is the real news. He has never lied to the American people. No, I don't Kaylee think the McEnany, president your has credibility lied. will be shot with my CNN audience if you don't back to off the that American people. Overall, since the president took office, President Trump has created more than one million jobs. Yes, yeah, because the president had left and he started bullying someone on those grounds. Bullying? Did you the see way, the video? The president's not bullying anyone. You this is that? more fake news. I think MSNBC has lied to the American people. I think the fake news has lied to the American people. Has the people. president don't take lied to me. the American people? Chris, he has I don't never think the lied to the American lied. people. No, I don't Kaylee think the McEnany, your credibility lied. will be shot with my CNN audience if you don't back to off the that American statement. People. The media delegitimizes themselves repeatedly. Fake news. Fake news. You are fake news. Fake news. You fake news. Fake news. Fake news. Fake news. Fake news. To the Jay Doherty Podcast. Uh, I hope you like that little break. I think that's what we're going to start doing, have uh, sort of little related uh, promo tags for whatever we talk about on the podcast. Uh, we'll just have that uh, in the middle. Instead of doing live stream breaks when we do the live streams here, we will just end up doing what we normally do, uh, which is music, but have more uh, related and informative montages of <laughs> whatever we were speaking about going into the break. Let's move on to something uh, a little bit better, actually, in terms of a state response. Chris, or, sorry, Andrew Cuomo, Chris Cuomo's brother, has been handling the uh, coronavirus in his state particularly well. And I'm not even saying, I'm not saying that for any political reasons at all, actually. Um, because right now, the big concern has shifted internationally to the global epicenter of the coronavirus. And the global epicenter of coronavirus is New York. The man of the month, and maybe months, is New York Governor Andrew M. Cuomo. The president and uh, Governor Cuomo have worked surprisingly well together, um, considering Cuomo is sort of a dynasty Democrat holding the you know state office, and Trump is a new coming Republican holding federal office. You know we've seen 
that in other states has been particularly difficult for bipartisanship to actually come together. Uh, bipartisanship has not worked out too well in many states, particularly ones with, of course, Democratic governors. But I'm glad to see that Trump and Cuomo have been working together relatively seamlessly, despite the hiccups uh, before the numbers actually grew in New York. Here's Chris Cuomo interviewing his brother about this topic precisely, and this is actually where I think uh, Andrew Cuomo gave a really good response. Even though it sounds a little bit cheesy at the end, it is truly what you want to hear from your governor if you live in New York. Here is uh, Chris Cuomo um, interviewing Andrew Cuomo about this topic and how bipartisanship should actually play into his communication with the federal government. I am working with the okay. president cooperatively. It's very important that the federal government and state government work together during this time. I have to do my best mm-hmm. job for the people of this state. You cannot say, look, I've been the governor in this country who's the, been the most critical of the president up until now. And by the way, there's no governor that he's been more critical of than me. So nobody's going to say I've gone too soft on the president. We're working together to help the state. That's what's important now. No politics, no personality, no ego, no ego. It's not about you. Uh, it's not about me. It's about we and getting through this. And that's my singular focus. There'll be a day and a time for everything. Uh, but this is not the time and place. So that's perfect response. And I'm, if I were a constituent of New York, I'd be very proud of my governor and the way he's handling this thing. Because, of course, Chris Cuomo is certainly a member of the media. He's trying to push his brother, you know, trying to use that to his advantage, trying to get some sort of political statement out of him. But Andrew Cuomo did have a really good response. He also, uh, Chris, on an unrelated note, asked him if he'd run for president. Or at least he sort of asked that in a roundabout way. And uh, Andrew had a very, very funny way of actually <laughs> responding to that. Highly recommend it. You can find it at jay-dohrty.com slash Cuomo interview. But yeah, anyway, the president, at least from what I've seen in terms of New York and its existence, is more letting Mike Pence handle the logistics of the virus and really dealing with the epicenter of uh, coronavirus. And as the president likes to say... Uh, you know, he's letting Mike Pence and others on the coronavirus task force be more of a proponent of statistical data concerning hotspots, uh, as we saw the president say four times in one sentence last week, and the rest. Here's uh, the vice president giving an update on, uh, I think it was yesterday, uh, about, yeah, it was yesterday, on what the federal government is doing for New York specifically and the measures that they're actually taking as a federal government to move forward in the state. Here is uh, Mike Pence talking about New York specifically. The New York metro area, including New Jersey, just in the last five days, uh, more than 6 million N95 masks, more than 6 million surgical masks, uh, and 2.8 million uh, gowns were distributed to that region as well. Uh, Going next to New Orleans, uh, some uh, 837,000 N95 masks for healthcare workers, 165 surgical masks, uh, other items, including uh, almost 6 million gloves, have been distributed. So that's good. And the infrastructure, that, as I said in the, in the beginning of the show, um, the federal government's response to coronavirus has been much better in the past couple of weeks. They were doing all right before. I, I was very critical of them last week. I think they did, they deserved it. It was not too good. Trump was sort of blaming the states, saying the states should you know be more self-reliant. Um, that is true to a certain extent because the federal government and the state government do exist as sort of separate pieces of government. The state should uh, more so rely on the government to be the federal government to be more of a backup in 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 certain cases. But the federal government should always be more than supportive of the states because they were elected by the states, and that's what their job is. At, you know, in the first place, is to protect the constituents of everyone in their country, and the country is made up of states. And that's sort of a logical premise, but nonetheless, the global pandemic, or the, the pandemic's epicenter in the entire world remains in New York. The New York Times says the epicenter of the coronavirus is in New York. As of Friday evening, 7,844 people had died, while Governor Andrew M. Cuomo has said that the, there, these are early indications that the number of cases are plateauing. He has extended an executive order to keep non-essential businesses, including schools, closed. So that is really interesting. I mean, even if you look at these numbers throughout uh, the New York Times graphs in the state of New York, 170,512 cases. There are 7,844 deaths. So that's 40 uh, deaths per uh, per 100,000 people, and it's 869,869 cases per 100,000 people. That's within the state of New York. Of course, population density is really the determiner of all of these statistics, not only in New York, but also throughout the entire country and the world. New York City is extremely dense in terms of population. 
92,384 cases right now in New York City. 5,663 of those uh, are also, uh, are, are uh, 500, sorry, 5,663 of those uh, cases have, or people have died in New York City. Um, so that's 67 deaths per 100,000 people, 1,094 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, so you can see the density. I mean, there are 7,844 total deaths in the state. 5,663 of those are in the uh, city, in New York City. So the density and the ratio between, I mean, there's like literally a 2,000 difference between the state and the city. So you can see just how large New York is and how dense the cities are. Um, you can take a look at the uh, other parts of New York that are actually having major uh, high, high, high death rates that you can see the, the graph at the New York Times. We'll have it at jy-doherty.com slash map if you want to go take a look over there. Um, there's currently a stay-at-home order that was effective March 22nd at 8 p.m. Governor Andrew Cuomo um, has shied away from the language of shelter-in-place order. Of course, that was reinst- that was instated March 22nd, um, the, the stay-at-home order was. Because he said it evoked images of shooter situations or nuclear war. He said words matter, um, insisted in describing it as putting New York on pause. And he said that is the most drastic action we can take. Nothing has really changed in terms of governmental response since then. Uh, Cuomo continues to hold many press conferences, and that's exactly what is uh, happening uh, within New York. So, New York continues, I mean, it it is officially an epicenter. And as I leave you uh, today, tonight, 170,512 cases in New York, 7,844 deaths in New York. We'll take a look to see if the uh, numbers in coronavirus cases, at least reported cases, have gone up. Uh, According to my maps over from John Hopkins University, they have not. But that's currently where uh, coronavirus stands in New York and around the country right now. It's very scary. Of course, I said before, stay inside, wash your hands, do what your local governments say, follow the rules. They apply to everyone in these sorts of situations. And that's basically what I can leave you with uh, on episode number 132 of the J. Doherty Podcast. I appreciate your listenership. The phone number for this podcast is 312-625-8492. You can receive emails and newsletter updates every week at jay-doherty.com slash newsletter. See video of the show on YouTube. Read and listen to show notes and episode highlights on the uh, at j-doherty.com. Clips and highlights at thedoherdyfiles.com. This has been a JD Media Network production. Thank you for listening. Podcast is written, hosted, produced, and edited by Jay Doherty. The Jay Doherty Podcast is recorded in the studios of the JD Media Network. The Jay Doherty Podcast is a JD Media Network production. Copyright Jay Doherty 2020. Make sure to listen to other JD Media Network productions like the JDRC Politics Podcast for discussions on international politics or the Weekly File Podcast for all the news, just the facts. Learn more and hear more of this content at j-doherty.com or view archive clips and show highlights at thedohertyfiles.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the J. Doherty Podcast. For all the latest world and national news on technology, politics, and more, listen live to the J. Doherty Podcast on j-doherty.com. The J.D. Media Network.